Welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. In John 14.6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Our goal is to encourage everyone to grow in the Christian faith by anchoring themselves to the secure truth found in the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. As for God, His way is perfect. The Lord's Word is flawless. He shields all who take refuge in Him. For who is God besides the Lord? And who is the rock except our God? 2 Samuel chapter 22, verses 31 and 32, New International Version. Hello, I'm Victoria Kay. Welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. Today on Anchored by Truth, we're beginning a brand new series that we're calling The Complementary Attributes of God. With me in the studio is R.D. Fierro, author and founder of Crystal Sea Books, who is going to help us start thinking a little more deeply about the amazing God who we serve. R.D., Would you like to say hello to everyone and then tell us why you decided to call this series The Complementary Attributes of God? Well, yes, I would like to say hello to everyone. So, greeting to all the listeners today. We are honored that you would take some time out of your very busy days to be with us today. We know that you have a lot of choices for things that you want to listen to, either as podcasts or on the radio as broadcasts. And we are very grateful that you would take some time to spend with us today. We want you to know that we regard the fact that those who listen to our broadcast or our podcasts is a sacred trust. So we really do try to make sure that everything that we bring to you, first and foremost, exalts our magnificent God. Our goal is always to bring glory to God and to bring the truth of God's word to those people who need it. One of the things that is so desperately needed and is lacking too much in our society today is the recognition that the truth of God's Word is absolutely the one thing that will always be a certain guide for us as we try to navigate the very difficult circumstances that so many of us are facing today in our daily lives, in our communities, or in our nation. So towards that end of helping people to understand the truth of God, we wanted to take a few episodes of Anchored by Truth and just focus on God Himself. So you might think of this series, which we've entitled The Complementary Attributes of God, as a bit of an extended meditation on God's excellence and magnificence. We want to do that by thinking more deeply about God's attributes. So we've called this series The Complementary Attributes of God, because we specifically want to focus on the fact that while God possesses an enormous number of attributes, each of the attributes that God possesses shows a different aspect of God's character. But they all work together in a way that just shows how amazingly, astoundingly perfect God is. You know, it's like looking at a beautiful jewel, a beautiful diamond. There are a lot of different facets on that diamond, and you can focus on each facet individually. But it's when you stand back and you look at the entire jewel and the radiance that all those facets produce, that's when you can really see the beauty of the entire jewel. And so that's the way we want to approach this series, the complementary attributes of God. So we need to do a bit of a vocabulary lesson. 
two words that are pronounced the same but are spelled differently are called heterographs. So the words complementary, that is spelled C-O-M-P-L-I-M-E-N-T-A-R-Y, and complementary, which is spelled the same except that it's P-L-E rather than P-L-I, are heterographs. Their pronunciation is the same, but they mean different things. Complementary with an I means to give something away for free, as in giving a complimentary meal in a restaurant. Or it can mean to express admiration or praise for someone. If you say, you have beautiful eyes, you're giving someone a compliment. But the word complimentary with an E means to combine two or more things together in such a way as to emphasize the qualities of each of those things. A lot of people like sweet and sour sauce on egg rolls or fried chicken bites. They wouldn't just want a sweet sauce, nor would they just want a sour sauce. But when the ingredients are combined to make a sweet and sour sauce, many people find the combination very appealing. That's an example of complementary that we're talking about here. The title of this series is The Complementary Attributes of God, complementary with an E, because all of God's attributes work together in perfect harmony. They complement one another. God's attributes work together in perfect harmony because God is perfect. Unlike human beings, where sometimes the attributes we possess can create conflicts within us, God's attributes always mesh and harmonize perfectly. Exactly. As I was just saying a second ago, it's possible to discuss God's attributes individually, but sometimes when we do that, we run the risk of making it seem like God's attributes might be in conflict with one another. For instance, we might think that God's perfect justice might conflict with His mercy. But this is never the case with God. God's justice and mercy are both distinctive attributes that He possesses, but neither one ever conflicts or contradicts the other. As you said, and as we heard in our opening scripture, all of God's ways are perfect. Well, before we get too much deeper into our discussion of how God's attributes work in perfect complement to each other, let's listen to a meditation from Crystal C. Books, Purposeful Prayers, on one of the most important of God's attributes, the fact that God is infinite. Meditation on the Infinite God God is infinite. In saying this, we are describing God by saying what He is not i.e., God is not finite. In other words, God is not limited in His being. Neither time nor space hems Him in or restricts His activity. It is tempting to say that God has no limits, but strictly speaking, this is incorrect. God is limited by the attributes of His own character. Thus God, who is infinitely good, can never do anything evil or unrighteous. God's infinitude is one of the reasons He is the only object worthy of our worship, adoration, or prayer. People and angels, indeed anything created, are all finite entities. Limits beset our lives. There are limits to our wisdom, strength, money, compassion, love, and every other facet of our experiences and abilities. As finite beings that live in a world of boundaries and restrictions, we are tempted to prioritize our prayer requests. We're afraid we might try God's patience, exceed our quota, or give up a big thing because we also prayed for a small thing. A teenager may not pray about a test because she is praying about her mother's cancer. A man may not pray about what kind of car to buy because he is much more concerned about business or job pressures. 
but we must remember that God can hear every request and act upon each one according to His sovereign pleasure without diminishing His strength or capacity while doing so. God is not constrained, and indeed cannot be constrained, by anyone or anything other than His own perfect character. God can raise up a nation or put one down just as easily as He can keep a baby bird from falling out of a nest. God can move a galaxy just as easily as He sends a flickering breeze to wave the petal of a daisy. The universe is so vast to us that we cannot see more than a tiny fraction of it. Yet God not only created and maintains the entire cosmos, He could make a million more universes without feeling any strain. God has given us an open invitation to come boldly before His throne of grace to draw from that storehouse. Nothing can thwart a purpose of God. In drawing near to God through prayer, we align ourselves to the only one who can truly meet our needs and fill our hearts. God's infinitude assures us that He is never absent or asleep when we approach Him. As finite beings, we will never fully grasp the infinite God, but we can rely surely on the knowledge that as we diligently seek Him, He will more fully and completely reveal Himself to us. Well, that meditation was a good introduction to the first two attributes of God that we want to discuss. Which are? That God is both infinite and, as we've alluded to earlier, perfect. But it is important to understand that while God is infinite, that does not mean that when God expresses His attributes in His creation, it does not mean that it is appropriate to say that that particular attribute in isolation or by itself is infinite. I think we're going to need an example of what you're thinking about. Well, let's take, for instance, one of the attributes that we've already mentioned, God's mercy. God is a merciful God, and praise the Lord that He is. If God were not a merciful God when Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, there would have been no hope for Adam and Eve's redemption, but there also would have been no hope for the redemption of any of their descendants, including us. But while God is infinite, people need to understand that there will come a time when He will put a limit on the mercy that He extends to those who have rebelled against Him. So in other words, God Himself may be infinite, but it is not accurate to say that God's mercy is infinite. There's going to come a time when the activities of this created order will have achieved God's intended purpose, and then God is going to wrap up this phase of creation, if you will, in preparation for the next phase. Well, at the time that God begins that wrap-up, and actually at the time that an unbeliever dies, leaves this world, and enters into what some people call the intermediate state, at the time that someone dies, or at the time that Jesus returns for the second coming, As God begins to close one phase of creation in preparation for the next phase, anyone who has not accepted God's gracious offer of salvation through Jesus is then going to face God's perfect judgment. So, in a certain sense, God's offer of mercy, having been rejected by some people, will have expired for those who rejected it. In other words, while God is still going to continue to remain a merciful God, While God is still going to continue, always will be infinite, the expression of God's mercy will have ended for those who rebelled against Him. 
And so in that sense, God's mercy is not infinite. God's mercy arises certainly out of his unmatched, unblemished, perfect character. And part of that character includes God's infinitude. But that does not mean that God's mercy is going to be infinitely expressed to those people who have rejected it. God's mercy, like other of his attributes, does have the limit. In the case of God's mercy, the limits of God's mercy are those that are prescribed by God's perfect justice. And that's why you sometimes say jokingly that if you hear a booming voice coming out of heaven that asks you whether you want justice or mercy, you should always ask for mercy. But I see what you're saying. God, in his essence, is infinite. But as that infinite God superintends his creation, he will put limits on how his attributes affect different portions of that creation. So, while God is infinite, the expression of his attributes in the created order is not. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But God put limits on how far he elected to stretch out those heavens. He didn't have to put limits on them because he has the power to stretch out the heavens as much as he wanted to. He does possess infinite power. But he stretched out the heavens only as much as he wanted to in order to achieve his ordained plans. Exactly. So, before we get into our detailed discussion about how certain of God's attributes complement rather than conflict with one another, we need to be sure that we understand one thing very clearly. God's attributes never, never, never come into conflict with one another. You know, attributes that we human beings possess might not always be in harmony. Sometimes our own attributes are going to create conflicts within us. But that's never true with God. God's attributes are always in perfect harmony within the Godhead. Someone once said that all heresy arises from a misunderstanding of the nature of God. And as human beings, we have limited attention spans, limited ability to focus on things. So sometimes we have a tendency to focus on certain things to the exclusion of others. For instance, 1 John 4, 8 says that God is love. And indeed, God is love. But God's love does not contravene his holiness or his justice. God's holiness, love, and justice are complementary with one another. And an awful lot of mischief arises because some people will reason that a loving God would permit people to do anything that they want to, just because that's how some people believe earthly parents should express love for their children. But this is a very wrong-headed notion. Yes. A good earthly parent would never permit their child to do anything that comes into the child's head. Good earthly parents know that all children need boundaries and restrictions, age-appropriate ones for sure, but boundaries nevertheless. A good human parent expresses their love by setting appropriate boundaries for their kids to keep them out of danger. So it makes sense that God would do the same. Right. So that's exactly what God has done. He has set limits on the permissible behavior of his children. Now, many of those limits are set forth in the Ten Commandments, which in today's day and age are often considered to be quaint or antiquated even, especially the limits in the Ten Commandments on sexual behavior. God has clearly designated some sexual behavior as sinful. But today, people will often take the position that a loving God, loving in quotes, that a loving God 
would never disapprove of any behavior by which one person might choose to show affection to another. But that kind of an idea is decidedly unbiblical. Part of the reason that the people have this kind of misunderstanding is that they don't understand or they don't know that God is trying to protect his children from harmful behaviors. But a part of the reason that they have these unbiblical notions arises from a failure to recognize that God's love is never divorced from his holiness. So the point you're making is that we have to be careful not to elevate one of God's attributes in such a way that it swamps all the others. And as human beings, we do have a tendency to do that. Because of our fallen nature, we can be tempted to try and find reasons to justify our sinful tendencies, and one of the ways people do that with God is to try and isolate or fixate on one of God's attributes, such that we ignore the entire body of Scripture's teaching. So, where do you want to start with showing that God's attributes always complement one another? Well, let's uh, complete the discussion that we have started about the interaction of God's justice and mercy. Okay. Simply put, justice is obviously the attribute of God's character, which means that God has prescribed standards for equity, fairness, and righteousness, and he actively oversees the behavior of people in accordance with those standards. The fact that God is a just God means that at some point he is going to set everything right, He may not reward every good deed or punish every wrong or evil action on this side of heaven, but if he doesn't address them on this side of eternity, he will address them when we are called to stand before him after the second coming of Jesus. Frankly, properly understood, God's perfectly just character should be one of the thoughts that drives us to the foot of the cross. Exactly. And as you have just said, God is a God of perfect justice. So at some point, God is going to have to punish all sin because all sin is a form of rebellion against God's ordinances. And a just God cannot just overlook rebellion or pretend that it doesn't exist. And that's why it's so important to remember that God is not just a God of justice. He is also a God of mercy. So how do God's justice and mercy complement one another? Well, God's justice means that he must punish wrongdoing. And even human beings recognize that it is not acceptable for evildoers to be permitted to run around doing evil things without consequences. And we recognize that, and we're imperfect. So if we as imperfect human beings recognize the need for right to be rewarded and evil to be punished, how much more clearly does a perfect God understand that? You know, as we mentioned earlier, when Adam and Eve ate the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the Garden of Eden, they permitted evil, they permitted rebellion to enter the human race. Now, their act of rebellion affected not just themselves, but also all of their descendants, as we've said, including us. So, of course, all of Adam and Eve's descendants includes everyone who has ever lived. So when Adam and Eve rebelled against God, that affected everybody. And if God was just a God of justice, well, that would have been pretty much bad news for everybody, not just for them, but for everybody who has ever lived. But because God is also a merciful God, God immediately began a plan of redemption right after Adam and Eve fell. And the plan of redemption is an expression of God's mercy. Mercy is compassion, kindness, or forbearance that is shown to an offender, or said slightly differently. If there was never an offense in the first place, there would never be any need for mercy. 
I think I see why you've said that God's justice and mercy complement one another. Adam and Eve's rebellion was an offense against God. So once they committed that offense, because God is just, he had to do something about the offense. If God were only just and not merciful, God would have had to punish Adam and Eve, which would have been dreadful for them and us. Because God is merciful, in addition to being just, God began to ameliorate the consequences of their rebellion. Yes, but it's important to understand that Adam and Eve's rebellion had real and immediate consequences for them and us. God began a plan of redemption that ameliorated the consequences of their rebellion, but it is not true to say that their rebellion did not have real consequences. You know, I sometimes say that human beings have the prerogative not to obey God, but we never have the prerogative to disobey God without consequences. And part of the consequences of Adam and Eve's rebellion was that they were expelled from the Garden of Eden, which was a perfect habitat for them to live in. So one of the immediate consequences of Adam and Eve's rebellion was they were expelled from their perfect habitat. And as a consequence of being expelled from the garden, Adam and Eve were now going to have to work much harder in order to sustain themselves. In Genesis chapter 3, verses 17 through 19, God told Adam, quote, Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food, unquote. Eve was also going to experience difficulty during childbearing, so Adam and Eve immediately began to experience some of the consequences of their rebellion. But because of God's mercy, God did put a limit on those consequences. Yes. God began to exercise his mercy at the same time he pronounced Adam and Eve's initial punishment. Adam and Eve were banned from the garden, but God promised Eve that one of her descendants would come and defeat Satan, who was the serpent who had deceived her. We now know that Eve's descendant, who defeated Satan, was Jesus. Jesus took the punishment that was due to us when he died on the cross. So when sometimes people think or say to themselves, well, Christians are not going to be punished in the same way that unbelievers are going to be punished in hell, it's not fair to say that Christians have escaped punishment. It's just that Jesus was the one who endured the punishment that was due to us. As we have noted, God is an infinite God. So when Adam, a finite being, rebelled against an infinite God, Adam's sin merited infinite consequences. Well, there is no way for a finite being to pay an infinite debt. So because of God's mercy, God immediately began a plan of redemption whereby God made provision of his own for that infinite debt to be repaid. Well, let's remind everyone that this condition where a finite being incurred an infinite debt is the whole reason for Jesus, for the Incarnation. In order to satisfy an infinite debt, it takes an infinite being to make the payment. Jesus was born of an earthly mother, but it was the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinitarian Godhead, who created the baby within her womb. So Jesus had an earthly mother, but a heavenly father. This is the doctrine of the dual nature of Christ. Correct. Jesus was both fully human and fully divine. Now, this is a mysterious doctrine, and I doubt that any human being, certainly not me, understands it comprehensively. 
And probably the best that we can do in stating this doctrine is to use the formula that was adopted at the Council of Chalcedon, which states that Jesus has two natures, and those natures are neither mixed nor confused, but also those natures are not separated or divided. And the formula goes on to say that each nature retains its own attributes. Well, this means that when Jesus died on the cross, that infinite divine nature of Jesus, through participating with Jesus' human nature in the death on the cross, could fully satisfy the infinite nature of the debt that man owed. Now, I know that some of this can be hard for, especially a new listener, to understand. And I would be the first one to tell you that it takes some thought and meditation to grasp it. I certainly know that it did for me. This is the kind of thing where you have to spend some time reviewing it, thinking about it, and studying it for it to make complete sense to you. But I cannot overstate the importance of Christians coming to a complete awareness of this doctrine. Because this doctrine, the dual nature of Christ, is one of the things that makes Christianity unique among the religions of the world. I fully agree that the doctrine of the Incarnation is a real mind-bender the first time you hear it. (laughs) Maybe the millionth time you hear it. It's just so out of character with all of our other experiences. All people, except for Jesus, are single people with one nature. That's pretty easy to grasp. But when you start talking about a single person with a dual nature, well, in the old days, we might have said, that just doesn't compute. It is a tricky proposition. I heard a minister one time say to think of it in this way. God is a Trinitarian God, which means that God has one nature or essence, so that is one what, but that one essence or nature is expressed eternally in three persons or sometimes termed subsistences, so that's one what, but three whos. Jesus, by contrast, is a single person, a single who, but Jesus has two natures. Now, as I said, this is a proposition that requires some thought, some prayer, some meditation, and some study, but this doctrine really is a key to understanding how God's justice and mercy complement each other. And that part, at least, is a little easier to understand. Within the Trinitarian Godhead, it was decided that the second person of the Trinity would take on a human nature and pay the debt. When you think through all this, it becomes apparent why it's a good idea to understand the complementary, with an E, nature of God's attributes. In a very real way, the complementary nature of God's justice and mercy makes salvation possible for those of us who place our trust in Jesus. Well, in our next episode of Anchored by Truth, we're going to explore some more of God's attributes and see not only how they complement each other, but also how they enable us to truly see what a great God we worship. This sounds like a great time to go to the Lord in prayer. Today, Let's listen to a prayer for those who have not yet come to a saving knowledge of Jesus. Let's remember always to pray regularly for our nation and communities. We have all endured some trying times recently, but the Bible tells us that greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. The Bible assures that God hears and responds to the sincere prayers of his faithful children. A prayer for the spiritually lost. Wondrous and perfect Father, we exalt your name and sing praises to your glory. Your word is the foundation of joy and the bedrock of hope. In you, there is blessed assurance. Without you, 
the shifting sands of a sin-stained shore would wash away beneath us and we would be swept into the depths by the tides of trouble. With you we cannot be moved or thrown down, though all the waves of chaos should pound against us with fervor and anger. Lord, too many have been swept away, and we are grieved to see all about us people we know whose life foundations are crumbling. We see our neighbors being pushed to and fro by the currents of popular opinion, and whose lives are filled with fear and despair because they have no sustaining source of truth. We come before you today to plead for their rescue and redemption. We ask that you sovereignly intercede in the lives of those who are lost and sinking and turn their hearts to you. As when the citizens of Nineveh heard Jonah's preaching and repented, Please touch our land and community with your word and call our neighbors to you. Give us opportunities to witness that we would miss on our own. Strengthen our hearts to stand for Christ as he stood for us. The glory is his alone, so it is in his name we pray, give thanks, and ask for the lost to be saved. Amen. We hope you'll be with us next time, and we hope you'll take some time to encourage some friends to tune in also, or listen to the podcast version of this show. If you'd like to hear more, try out crystalcbooks.com, where we're not famous, but our boss is.